Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. So, what does it mean to be a modern warrior? First off, the elephant in the room. Warrior isn't a dirty word. A warrior is mindful. They seek excellence and have learned to control their aggression. It's about understanding leadership, developing individual resilience, and seeking consistent human optimization. Remember, lifting heavy isn't dangerous. Being weak is dangerous. Fortune favors the brave, and you're never given more than you can handle. This, then, is the Warrior You podcast. All call signs. Ready, ready, ready. Let's roll! G'day gang, it's Trent here. Welcome back to the Warrior You podcast. Today on the podcast, Bram, you know, you and I are going to discuss this important concept of your leadership narrative, a topic that's really close to my heart. And by the end of this episode, I think you'll be better equipped to develop uh, a great elevator pitch that leaves your team in no doubt as to who you are, as well as your expectations and your values as a leader. Bram, what do you, what do you think about a leadership narrative? Oh, look, this is this has got to be one of the the best things that you've brought to to the business as a um, as my business partner. To be fair, it was something that I hadn't really ever thought about. And just recently, I stood in front of a subject uh, one for corporal, and I said to them, "Hey, who here has ever dis- ever actually sat there and ruminated or reflected on what their leadership narrative is going to be and who they are as a leader?" And you know, if you can't give me that narrative in you know, uh, an elevator pitch over, say, 15 floors, then perhaps you don't actually know it. Um, so I think this is going to be a really powerful episode and I'm pretty pumped with the guests that you've organised as well, mate, just quietly. Yeah, um, well, to help me in discussing this topic, uh, the guest is the Honourable Stephen Marshall, MP for Dunstan and the leader of the Liberal Party of the South Australian Division and the Premier of South Australia. So for those outside of Australia... Uh, not familiar with the Australian political system. The Liberals in Australia are actually the major conservative party. So they're uh, somewhat akin to the Republicans in the US. And a premier is similar to a state government within that political system. So Steve will be helping us today by giving his perspective on his leadership narrative. And uh, and we'll try and get around to talking about some of the, you know, the complex issues around leading uh, a state during these uh, difficult times. Bram, what do you think modern leadership actually looks like? Wow. I mean, that's such a tough question. Um, I think it's different than than leadership, the way that leadership was looked at in the last 50 years. I think it's definitely evolving at a rapid pace at the moment. You know, we need courageous leaders. They they have to be humble. I think that humility is really a, a superpower. Mm. You have to be able to leave your ego at the door, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Leaders should be guided by a, a moral compass. And that moral compass is the combination 
of having a social purpose. You can't have your license to operate anymore without a purpose that contributes to society. And I think for me, what's been missing from that dialogue is really a set of guiding principles. I think if we think about the things, the way that leadership is framed at the moment and in particular the way that Simon Sinek talks about, you know, knowing your why, for instance, and also the values of the organisation, making sure they line up. We can't just define why we exist. We have to define how we're going to do business as a leader and how we're going to lead, but also how we link business opportunities with those universal human sort of needs. The two of those need to to be wound together pretty tightly, I think. So what would your set of principles be around leadership, do you think? Yeah, that's it, cha- it actually changes dependent on the group. I think um, having a clear sense of purpose, an understanding of where a leader's come from, where mm. they are now and where they want to go into the future. But I'm starting to even morph and change a little bit too, Trent, to seeing now that leadership has to be done for the greater good not just of yourself of the team but of humanity and i think covid has really shown us that the best leaders are the ones that are able to provide people with that guiding light into the future because you know there's eight billion people were in lockdown last year mate it's a huge Mm -hmm. social experiment of epic proportion if you think about that and leaders really yeah. are the ones that have stood up and said, hey, we're going to get through this. Let me, let me, let me help you be more resilient. Let me get you through to the other side. Um, Eight billion people locked down, and it's only a smattering of leaders that have been able to draw them out. So, yeah, I'd say in a, in a nutshell, that would be the, the sort of guiding um, principles. Okay, so how have you come by these principles, and how would you communicate that to your team? Yeah, I honestly think that authenticity is the area – personally that isn't given enough kudos at the moment because what we're seeing is leaders who are sitting you know in front of a skype or a zoom or in this case riverside for us and and then suddenly you have a dog jump on your lap or you have uh, have a kid come in that's losing a tooth you know or you stand up and you're wearing a business suit shirt and tie but you've got board shorts on and so suddenly people are seeing leaders a lot more authentically than what they have before and so i think it's i think it's being authentic in your principles as a leader and then taking them in and sharing them with your with your team um i find it hard to do to separate you know bram's you know work self from bram's home self because they Mm. i try and delineate between the two but now that i stop now i've stopped doing that it's made me feel a lot more comfortable as a leader as well yeah that's an interesting uh that's an interesting observation because i think that's how i felt over the last couple of years as well but particularly as said in the last 12 months but uh, you know i think it's really important to be that authentic leader and i'm not sure i like that word authentic it's a bit of a buzzword at the moment Mm. but it, it is it is a um, you know an accurate word. Can I ask you though, Trent? Yeah. That authenticity it is a buzzword and it is something that's difficult. But it mm-hmm. wasn't until you started talking to me about leadership narrative that I realised that I was winging a lot of stuff and not and not actually falling back on those principles. And so I'd be interested to to hear you you know you talk on leadership narratives for 
for the the people listening here so that they can they can have that same sort of understanding of the framework that you're talking about? So I, I personally think it's a truism that most leaders want to be better leaders or at least get better results. And for those that are consciously looking to improve, which I think is the greatest majority of those listening right now, uh, it's my belief that understanding your leadership narrative is an exceptionally effective way of doing this. Um, you know, my experience is that most leaders today have rarely, if ever, uh, given much thought to the context of their decisions or the impact of their worldviews on their actions. So, Bram, I'm going to ask you to think about some questions for a moment. How would you respond in the following leadership vignettes? And later on, I'd like you to reflect on why it is that you'd respond in that particular manner. The first question is, how would you notify a team member that they're being removed from a project or being made redundant? Send them an email. <laughs> harsh, harsh. Um, all right. So uh, um, how would you genuinely manage and react and react in a conversation with a team member who's come to you with a complaint that another team member has sexually harassed them? Oh, yeah, send them an email. <laughs> right, I'm pretty sure that's not how you'd uh, react, but uh, but anyway, no, that's um, that's tough. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and think about how you know why you would react in the way that you would. You know what what would be the triggers for you to to manage that situation, but also how you, you would interact. So, what would trigger you to remove duties from a team member or to micromanage them if they hadn't answered an email? <laughs> Wow. Um, how would you react and what steps would you take if a team member came to you and told you they had terminal diagnosis, wished to remain working in the organisation? Oh, wow. You are asking the big questions today, mate. Yeah, that's a tough one as well. Yeah, yeah and what would cause you to sack a team member? Yeah, look, they're all, they are all really, really, yeah, they didn't answer an email. That They are all really, really tough questions. And I, I guess... You know, I was making a little bit of light of it by saying, you know, email yeah. this, email the other, because that's what a lot of leaders do is they sit in their chairs and they send emails and they think that's leadership. But, you know, yeah. um, leadership is actually a relationship game. And, and you know, I mean, you've taught me taught me that. I used, to, I used to, you know, say that leadership is about people, but it's actually about, it's more than just people. It's about the relationships you form with people. And each, it would be a reductionist mm. of me to be able to give any one answer to any one of those questions because it's really context dependent on each one of not only the questions you've asked but the individuals and their their source code and the way that they come to yep. work and the feelings and the emotions the context around the situation i think all this has shown me in the last two minutes is just the amazing complexity that leaders face day to day and that mm. they are quite often priests mums dads lawyers you know they're, they're doing everything for their teams yeah. Yeah, I guess for most of these questions, most people probably haven't really thought about them before. Of course, unless you've had to deal with something like this, you're probably not quite sure how you would react at the time or those precise words. You know, perhaps you'd hesitate and they might even be a little esoteric in nature. You might have to reach and think for those answers. But what if I asked you this next question? How did you meet your partner? Yeah, you know, you, you'd be able to answer me with all the humour and inflection and sincerity that was needed to convey that special moment, right? We've told that at dinner parties and told that at, 
you know, birthdays and, you know, uh, school fates and places where people mm-hmm. ask you. So, yeah, yeah, I get where you're going with this. Yeah, it's good. You've said it a, a million times. It's like you've rehearsed it. It's easier to answer. It's clear. It's memorable and specific. And you know really intimately every part of that story and the context behind it, the situation, the moments leading up to it and how you felt and those sorts of things. Yeah, it's a fair comment. I think most of us tend to react to leadership situations or or those dilemmas or experiences as they're instantly presented to us i'm um, just responding mm. to the to the stimulus and letting our own emotions sometimes and i guess that's where eq as a leader comes into it as well having that eq training we quite often talk about that in our leadership consultancy don't we about understand your reactions to things yeah. first before you try and understand others um I, I guess if you understand who you are as a leader a little bit more intimately a little bit de- deeper then maybe you'll have mm. a better understanding of how you might react in any given situation. And then you're yeah. more likely to be consistent in your reactions, I guess. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I guess like any personal story, you know how to make your point. You know when that punchline is and how to deliver it for maximum impact. And the point of it all is that stories are supposed to evoke feelings and thoughts in others or else, you know, what's the point? And for the best storytellers amongst us, and I can't say that I'm an awesome storyteller, but they've certainly thought about a story's delivery and have probably retold it many times, you know, like you you just spoke about, you know, in fates and at dinner parties and those sorts of things. But in any story you tell, it's generally designed to either entertain, inform or inspire others to action and perhaps you know, uh, have the listeners reflect on it themselves. And so it should be with your own personal leadership narrative, which is your leadership story. Yeah, I love this, Trent. I think I think we need to remember that, you know, you are the hero of this action movie. You're really the yeah. person in charge of it. And so, as I said to that subject one for Corporal, you know, uh, build an elevator pitch to inform and inspire your team and know it intimately and and as you said around the storytelling, you're the hero of the moment. So tell people what the hero does next. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's it's a short pitch to your team uh, on your experiences. Uh, that is who you are, your leadership style, expectations and your vision. And it's a representation of your own experiences, biases, values and beliefs. But importantly, it's your reflection on those things that provides the real meaning behind the purpose of your leadership narrative. It's the, I guess, in our vernacular, the so what, if you will. Yeah, so we all, I guess we all instinctively know the data, you know, the facts and figures are rarely retained by the majority of listeners and team members. And that to be truly impactful, we really need to communicate with our team using that storytelling technique telling your team you're an agile or directive or uh, laissez-faire leader is only um, sort of partly helpful because they're just they're just big they're just wank words really but if you have the ability to create a story around your personal experiences that leadership style and those cognitive biases that you may have had or that you're working on or that you have now then you have a distinct advantage over other leaders who who lack the ability um, or avoid the work around enunciating what it means for them to be a, a leader. So, mate, what makes up the core components of a leader's leadership narrative, just to throw you on the on the spot there? <laughs> well, um, your leadership narrative should essentially consist of four components. Of course. Firstly, and that is 
Yeah, yeah, well, it's easy to remember then, right? So the first, firstly is your experience, who you really are. And this appears to be uh, a pretty straightforward task at first glance. However, experience shows that many leaders are yet to reflect on their pivotal and life-defining moments, their upbringing or their previous experience, uh, experiences with good or poor leaders. And this could include your upbringing, relationships, it might even be the effects of the death of a loved one or a specific experience in the workplace that's now shaped who you are as a leader. You could consider... Um, you know, if you're struggling to think about that, if you haven't thought about this in the past, you could consider mining your own photos for memories, um, review your CV and sort of go back through those different roles that you've had or simply reflect on pivotal moments in your life when, when your life has taken a left or right turn. You know, and when conveying these key moments in your life, it's vitally important that you choose a story that's had, you know, the most profound effect on the way you lead. Because remember, it's the so what. So, so what about this particular experience or set of experiences has caused you to lead the way you do? And the second point is your worldview, your beliefs and biases. And if we thought that the previous, uh, the previous uh, component of your leadership narrative is difficult, um, now I'm, what I'm asking you to do is think about, um, you know, your belief system. And as you say, Bram, as you've already said, your source code. And it might relate directly to a previously mentioned experiences. Then you've got this cognitive bias that you're aware of. You've reflected on, you know, what you, you know, the way you think. Um, uh, for instance, it might be faith-based. So if you, you know, um, if you have a particular faith and, and this guides the way you lead, or it might be a political political element or moral and, and this helps your team to understand how you formed your opinions and how and why you are likely to act in most circumstances. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some leaders who just, they just get around with this sort of like air of mystique about them and they try and be all, you know, mysterious in their leadership and they only talk when they think mm. something really important to say. And it doesn't really serve them or the the team, um, it doesn't aid in team building or trust or anything like that. It it just yeah. sort of makes them look like a, a bit aloof. And to be fair, you know, if leadership's getting someone to do what you want them to do because they want to do it, they, they're going to do it for someone that they like. And if you cr- try and create this air of mystique about yourself or, or, you know, try and go through things and hide everything, not be authentic, people don't want to work for you. Mm. Yeah, that's that's right. And understanding a leader's source code helps a team to anticipate a leader's guidance and direction earlier. And it really provides a fair degree of empowerment. And as you said, it ultimately builds trust and cohesion in that team. So the third point is your leadership style and story. And this should remain coherent with the first uh, first couple of points. You know, it should really focus on outlining the type of leader you normally are and in what circumstances you might change styles. For example, if you generally operate as quite a participative leader, uh, when might you change to a more directive style? So under what circumstances can the team expect you to change leadership style so it doesn't come as as a shock and awe moment and importantly how does that manifest in your behaviors words and actions so if you haven't thought about this you can imagine your team when you go from being that you know easy 
easy to get along with consultative type of leader and it becomes uh, somewhat directive, you know, how does that how does that come across to your team and when can they expect it? So interesting. I mean, I've got a few um, clients that I work with directly, Trent, that I've talked to you about who've read everything about leadership. Mm. They've watched everything about leadership. They understand more about leadership than than you know than I would ever know and yet when push comes yeah. to shove they revert to type and um and in some cases it's easy for their for their teams because they know this person might talk all this rubbish about leadership 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 but when they when they start going under stress they know what they're going to be like so anyway um what's the fourth component well it's really around expectations and oh. <laughs> and there's two component parts to this right it's both your team's expectation so you, your expectations of your team and what your team can expect from you. Right. And that's really important. You know, this is where we really dive into a level of specificity that is aimed at this particular team that you are leading and in the organisation that you're leading it in. So what do you expect from your team? So, And this should naturally flow out of your style, your uh, worldviews and biases and experiences. Nothing that you say now should be a shock to your team when you say you know this is these are the sorts of things that i expect and you know it could be a range of specific things but you should also be telling your team what they can expect from you yeah i assume that you know the the captain of the western force ian Pryor, he's going to be expecting different things from that team than perhaps you know a leading hand at kamatsu with a bunch of young um fitters um you know the expectations are going to be dependent on context i guess indeed you may not necessarily understand all of those expectations of the team right away unless you're sort of moving into a you know a very similar team to something that you've done before but you should be able to deliver this narrative in relatively short order and then add to those expect expectations in a routine way as you become more familiar with with the particular work that you're going to be leading. So what sort of things are we are we talking about, Trent? Well, of the team expectations, it might be around something as transactional as punctuality or communication requirements, but there's, you know, behaviours and standards, etc. cetera. Uh, and we've spoken about, you know, standards uh, and, you know, in, in a workplace, but also things that become a little more esoteric like, a mistakes or error policy and those sorts of things you know if if you've made an error or um, you've done something incorrect you know what's the sort of time frame that you you expect your team to be able to give you that sort of feedback um, and and of yourself you might say things like your open door policy so you might tell them if you have an open door policy or when they can you know uh, reach out and and uh, and that's going to vary between positions of course uh, fairness in treatment um, processing of personal administration. Again, that's somewhat transactional. Responsiveness to requests and those sorts of things. You know, as, as I said, we're getting into that level of specificity there. Specificity, nice word. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think that this is where company values are really, really important. And I think too many leaders, they just, they know they exist, but they don't use them as a tool to outline expectations and then to change people's behaviours or even to set people up in their personal development plans into the future just by using the company's values. And more than that, mm. if your personal values don't align to the company values, then sooner or later there's going to be um, a point where you and the company need to separate. Yeah, indeed. So, mate, I guess... 
we're at where the rubber hits the road and that's why is a leadership narrative important so as i said to you before i really love the whole concept around the leadership narrative i've seen us transform a lot of leaders based on this one piece of work that we do with clients Um, and i can see why a leadership narrative is so important but why do you believe that leaders need to put the time and effort into actually developing a leadership mm. narrative rather than just winging it? Well, my thoughts are is that a great leadership doesn't just happen by osmosis. It really takes experiential learning, study, reflection, and the same can be said for a great leadership narrative as well. Um, a coherent leadership narrative offers a learning moment to a team and truly you know, and really understanding your own perspective allows you to fully reflect on the environment that you find yourself in any given situation. And a leadership narrative brings a collection of thoughts and ideas and focuses them and importantly gives them uh, cognitive and emotional validity. Um, so so that's that's why I think it's important. So really we're, we're working through your own narrative by doing that work by doing that hard reflective work you're really working on operationalizing your belief systems sort of getting in touch with that you know if you imagine yourself as an iphone that underlying ios system you know you're updating that ios system um you're looking for those experiences and your preferences in sort of a a clear leadership framework so some left and right authoritative rails that work for you and then and then you're able to easily easily articulate that to a group. I think I'm starting to get my head around this a little bit more now and, and even just crystallizing yeah. mine in my mind's eye. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And and it also offers you improve uh, improved stability and speed within your decision making processes. You know, particularly during those critical moments in your tenure or when you're dealing with those really wicked problems that oh, have mate, no, now you're, no now, easy solution. Now you're talking my language. So basically what we're doing is we're we're being able to lead at pace. So because we understand that leadership narrative, we can make faster decisions which then makes mm. our decision making cycle smaller which increases productivity and leads to a higher performing team love it let's do this yeah 100 and and whilst other leaders might be trying to think about how they feel about a certain leadership dilemma like that you know sexual harassment um question that i asked before or set of circumstances a reflective leader that has a cohesive leadership narrative is already applying their own you know well understood roadmap to any given problem yeah, right. So why don't we work out how we might tell our listeners how to develop, design, construct that leadership mm. narrative? How do they prepare it? How do they deliver it? Um, you got any tips and tricks? It doesn't simply just happen. You should consume a range of professional content, maybe uh, maybe come along to a hindsight course, uh, and combine that with your growth. Well played. Uh, well played, Trent. <laughs> and combine that with your uh, growth brought on by your personal and leadership experience and then refinement and processing of that everyday discussion uh, uh, that it that it brings just as just as you and I discuss topics around leadership routinely with each other and other leaders and thought le- leaders in various fields like you know we we speak to a, a range of different people uh, they can give us different perspectives on what we believe but it needs to be done in an intentional manner so that you can hone your thoughts into that meaningful narrative yeah right and a leadership narrative would also require sort of that intimate 
uh, familiarity with the type of leader that you want to be into the future as well. You know, the whole fake mm. until you make it sort of thing. But a familiarity yeah. that allows, um, you know, you as a leader to employ your talent with sort of the same coherence, uh, comfort and excitement that you tell the story of how you met um, how you met that partner. As you said previously, I can see how I would want that to flow as easily as it is for me to say, oh, yeah, I met my partner at the, th- at the five ways in, in, you know, Paddington. You need to also reflect on and challenge what you've learnt and read. And with that is a great deal of humility that's required uh, because your own personal biases might be leading you to get in your own way of being a better leader. Uh, what's that saying that you say all the time, Brad? Uh, you can't get fat eating humble pie, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. yeah <laughs> God indeed. knows I've um, eaten the lashings of it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in my view, humility is rarely mentioned in leadership training, but without humility, there is no real reflection, no true reflection. It's required for self-awareness and honesty, um, you know, as, as a leader reflects on weaknesses and strengths. And I personally believe it's a quality that's routinely overlooked by many leaders. Yeah. So, so it's a simple process then. Once you've reflected on on all of these aspects to put it together, I assume? Yeah, well, as I've heard said previously, thoughts disentangle themselves over lips and fingertips. So commit your thoughts, your reflections, your concepts and leadership expectations in writing. And that'll help solidify your message and then rehearse, rehearse, rehearse because it's critical to landing the delivery of your narrative to the team. Um, after all, this is your story and like any other, of your, uh, any other story of yours, you should be able to deliver it without referring to notes if possible. So, so what are your thoughts on rehearsing? Oh, mate, you know, you know me. If, if I have to mm. do something that requires me to think, stand in front of a group, talk, you know, I rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. And I think that the more you rehearse, the, the, the more you set yourself up for success. It's, you know, and I think re- rehearsing the narrative like any key message should be done until you are really comfortable and confident. But also, if there's any distractions... That can happen and then you can jump straight back into a uh, train of thought. Yeah, like a question or something along those lines. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and I guess here's one of the most important parts and here's something that's a little different from rehearsing normally. You should rehearse your leadership narrative in front of a trusted team member or a peer. And in doing so, you should be open to the feedback that is generated because this is going to provide really valuable insight into whether your narrative is authentic or not. And and my, I guess my tips for this is that the feedback should really focus on your delivery style, you know, whether it's too fast or, you know, it just doesn't come across as you would normally communicate. Um, your message, which should land, the audience needs to go away really understanding who you are and why you operate the way you do and what you believe in and what your mutual expectations are for the team and their, and their expectations of you. And if this is in, in any way unclear at the end of this, then, you know, you're going to need some rework, I would, ima- uh, I would imagine. And it needs to be memorable. So, you know, is the... Li- you know, are your listeners, are your team members going to uh, remember your key messages and understand how they feel about your style and your expectations and your values? And can they convey that to others? If not, perhaps your narrative is overly complex or it lacks the impact needed to resonate with your team. And that's it, really. 
Mate, that's brilliant. I have a few beliefs that I didn't really know were beliefs until we had this conversation, but I say them all the time. And one of them is that leadership is an energy transference. Yeah. And so I can see how the way that I would have to deliver my deliver my leadership narrative would have to be one of uh, my delivery style would have to be one of energy to show that, yeah. to show that yeah. I believe that. Also, the foundational aspect to to the way that I run courses is that I always do check-ins on what's in people's invisible backpack. And so for me also, empathy is a really important value in, in mm. a leader. And so in, and although I find it hard to be empathetic, I also understand that it's something I'm working on. And so I would need to convey that in my leadership narrative. Um, mate, you've given me yeah. given me lots to think about today, and even though I've heard you know us talk about leadership narratives for the best part of a couple of years now, I'm I'm forever going back and reviewing it and trying to get it um, just right for the context of the group. Yeah, absolutely, and that's a really great point too because it's not a static narrative because it's going to change based on your experiences, mm. Mm. and you're going to develop and reflect up upon your own uh, experience as a leader. And so, of course, over time and with different teams where you have different expectations, it should change. So, yeah, really great point. Great. Let's do this. Who are you talking to? I'll be speaking with the Honourable Steve Marshall, MP, the Premier of South Australia. So thanks for chatting with me, Bram. Appreciate it. Ciao. I'm delighted to have the Honourable Steve Marshall, MP, on the Warrior U podcast today. As I'm sure you're all aware, Mr Marshall is the 46th and current Premier of South Australia, and I'm honoured to be in the company of Mr Marshall as his extensive leadership knowledge and experience is going to form a highly insightful conversation. Um, Mr Marshall was elected to the South Australian Parliament as the member for Nord in 2010 and then re-elected to the seat of Dunstan at the 2014 and subsequently the 2018 elections. But it was in 2013 that he became the leader of the Liberal Party and the state opposition. Um, But he led the party to victory on March the 17th, 2018, when he became the first Liberal leader to end uh, the state Labor government in 16 years. Today, he's responsible for the portfolios of defence and space industries, tourism, Aboriginal affairs, the arts, veterans' affairs and multicultural affairs. Personally, I believe that Mr Marshall is doing a remarkable job, uh, especially during the current situation we find ourselves in due to COVID and our recent bushfires, which were devastating in South Australia. I'm sure that I speak on behalf of much of South Australia in saying so. Uh, Mr Marshall has remained uh, focused on his considered decision-making and unwavering leadership throughout, leading the government and building important relationships with federal and state health officials and leaders to contribute to the safety of our state and the wider country. Uh, Prior to entering public life, uh, Mr Marshall also worked in the manufacturing industry and ran his family furniture manufacturing business, Marshall Furniture, and he did this from 1997. I'm really looking forward to speaking with Mr Marshall about his own leadership narrative and uh, leading the government, particularly during this time of COVID. Uh, I'm really inspired by his leadership story and I'm interested to find out more about the challenges he has faced 
uh, the lessons he's learnt and the advice he would give to others. So who better to discuss leadership with than the leader of the uh, Liberal State Government? Right, so uh, Mr Stephen Marshall, may I call you Steve? You can call me Steve. Excellent. I've been called a lot worse. <laughs> uh, welcome to the brand new Warrior You and Hindsight Leadership Adelaide office. Uh, it really is a pleasure to speak with you today and it's great to have you on the podcast as we reach out around the world and talk about all things leadership. Well, congratulations to Warrior You and this podcast. I know it just reaches thousands and thousands of people. Very, very informative and it's an honour to be with you today. Thanks very much, uh, Steve. And I think I think this is probably the third or fourth time uh, we've met. I really enjoy having conversations with you uh, each time uh, You know, we get these, these opportunities. So we've been talking about uh, leadership narratives and the messaging that we tell our teams. I'd be really interested to know what type of leader do you see yourself as and how have you communicated that to your team over the years? Well, I don't know that I've got a specific uh, type of leader. I, I think the, the traits that I sort of exhibit is hard work. I think a leader's got to be somebody that's prepared to roll up their sleeves and do the work. And a lot of people in my team say, well, you know, you're the first up in the morning, you're the last up uh, at night. Yeah. And I think that's really important. I think if I had to reflect on other things about my leadership style, I think it, I'm very inclusive. Um, obviously, in government, you have a cabinet. You don't just True. make all the decisions by yourself. It would be a very poor uh, style if you did make all of those decisions. So we try to make all of our decisions as collaboratively yeah. uh, as possible. Um, I think ultimately what you've got to do in leadership, though, is try to work out what is your vision, what are you trying to achieve, and then align that uh, leadership towards those goals. So I suppose just off the cuff there would be three things that I think that would define my type of leadership. Hard-working, collaborative and, and focused on outcomes. Yeah, okay. So how do you communicate that to your team? Do you have a specific way or is it leadership by example? You know, what, what's, what's your style in communicating those, um, those aspects? Well, we, when we sat down coming into government, we set ourselves three values uh, as a cabinet. So the first one was humility, the second one uh, was accountability and the third one was delivery. So we said to ourselves, what type of government, what type of cabinet do we want to mm. be? Uh, and we set those values uh, and we reflect on those values on a very regular basis because I think that the best type of governments are ones uh, where they exhibit humility. Nobody likes arrogance. I think people are also wanting uh, governments that take accountability, not shifting the blame. Well, that's somebody else's problem. That's the problem with Victoria. That's a problem in, in New yeah. South Wales or Australia. Actually, we're elected to um, deliver uh, and so taking accountability is, is crucial. And the third area, the third value that we've had is a focus on outcomes, delivering for the people of South Australia. So rather than talking about inputs, mm. we're spending more money, yep. we're actually trying to talk about outputs. Why is this going to be important uh, for the people of our state? So humility, accountability, delivery. Mm. We set those values. Uh, we try to live by those values. We reflect on them on a regular basis. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Basis. 
Well, you're talking all of our language. In fact, you know, we were just speaking before, Bram and I uh, were just speaking before about humility and how uh, how rarely humility is actually brought into leadership training and study and, and, you know, and how essential it is to reflect on a leader's performance, on your own performance. And uh, you're talking about using humility as a value within your own government. I think that's that's really good to hear you know, some of these key components that we've just been discussing come out in political leadership as well. I want to take a step back into something maybe a little more personal. Are there any pivotal experiences or people or belief systems in your life that have shaped the type of leader that you are now? Oh, number one here on my life has been my father. You right. know, he was a great leader himself. Um, also a very humble uh, person, probably one of the most humble people I've ever met, but a real achiever. Yeah. Um, somebody who really believed in Australia, he said very often that we uh, really live in the best country in the world because it doesn't matter where you start, you can set your goals wherever you want them to be and you can achieve those goals. And in other uh, parts of the world, you can't. Uh, yeah. You've got to be born uh, into a certain family or a certain class, a certain educational background for you to be successful. That's not the case. Yeah. I mean, I went to Ethelton Primary School. I feel very proud uh, that I went to Ethelton Primary School and, you know, I'm now the Premier of South Australia. I can hardly believe it. I have to pinch myself. <laughs> but that's the sort of place that we live in in yeah. South Australia where it doesn't matter where you start, you can just set your goals. By the way, Ethelton was an outstanding primary school. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people associate it with a lower socioeconomic uh, area, especially uh, at that time. Mm. Um, I just saw it as a for great sure. school with a great foundation uh, for me. And, and again living those uh, values that my father and my mother um, mm. put forward in our family, hard work, uh, being humble. I think, look, I don't and know. That, what, that was your dad? That was dad, but also mum. I, I genuinely believe we're all a product of our parents and if we're fortunate, we can take the good points from each. Um, sometimes we don't always take the good points because everybody's got you know good traits and Indeed. bad uh, traits. And yeah. So if you can take those good traits from your mum and from your dad, you can apply them, it's... It's, I think, you know, great opportunity. Yeah, and and are there any particular experiences that you reflect on now and think to yourself, this is, it's because of something like this that's happened that you believe in what you, uh, believe in a way that you do? I think number one thing would be what my father taught me, and that was to set goals. Like, as a really young kid with my two sisters, Dad would say, you can achieve anything, but you've got to believe that you can achieve it and you've got to set those goals. And he'd often say, look, set mm. your goals mm. for the term and then whenever we set them, he'd say double them. Um, because <laughs> he, he, and he, he used to get us to write them down, yep. put the dates when we would achieve them and, and sign this sort of contract oh, with ourselves. We did this as kids. Wow, it's like a social and moral contract with well, yourself. Just with yourself. You don't have with to yourself. share it with anybody. I didn't you know, have to show it to Dad. It wasn't like homework. Yeah. But I think that he really demonstrated that you can set your goals and too many people don't set goals. They they often think that they're victims of what happens around them. Well, Dad always said you're actually in control of things yourself yeah. uh, and take goals. And, and look, I also had other people that influenced. There was a great guy uh, in my local area growing up, Bob McKenzie, who was a very successful guy in the surf mm. life-saving yep. uh, movement. Yep. And, you know, he used to say, you know, don't write your goals in the sand. They'll just blow away. He said, etch them in steel. Wow, that's a, great, I, that's a great saying, isn't it? It is. And I just that's thought fantastic. to myself as a kid, you know, 
you know, and at the time I didn't really know exactly and precisely what he was talking about, but he was 100% right. Etch your goals in steel. Don't deviate from them. Don't let anybody talk you out. Don't let people tell you that you can't achieve anything that you want to. Mm. And I think that they're, you know, Dad, Bob McKenzie, they both had a big influence in me setting my goals as a, as a kid uh, in terms of schoolwork, in terms of sport, in terms of life, wow. in terms of career. And, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's good advice. That's, that's amazing. And, and there's, there's something in that for all of our listeners. And, and we do talk about goal setting and, and those sorts of things on the podcast and, and at hindsight. Let's talk about expectations now. And what, what are your expectations of your team and what can your team expect from you? And we've talked about humility, but what do you specifically talk to them about when you sort of dive down into that specificity of how your team is going to operate? All right. Well, the first thing I can tell you is that before coming into government, um, I spoke with John Howard uh, and I asked him his advice uh, on how Cabinet should operate. And he was really fantastic and very specific on the type of advice that he provided around Cabinet. He said, as a government, you should try to minimise making decisions outside of Cabinet. And the best type of governments are Cabinet governments. So you have, you know, in our instance, 14 people around the Cabinet table. So you have 14 sets of eyes looking on every single problem. You don't have one minister completely responsible for everything that happens in that portfolio. You have the whole Cabinet Mm. helping that, working Mm. together as a team. We meet in South Australia, in Cabinet, twice per week. Now, people don't believe this when I yeah, tell right. them that. I mean, in other states, some of them don't meet uh, more than... Well, in fact, some states meet just once every two weeks. We're meeting four times more often than wow. they, the Cabinet in New South Wales, for example. Wow. And in fact, during COVID last week, last year, sorry, mm. um, we had situations where we had two, three, four, and in one instance, five Cabinet meetings in a week because we needed to get around a problem. We needed to have different uh, inputs uh, into that. So my Cabinet expects, one, mm. we're going to meet very often, two, every single person has to ha- have input, not just into their own portfolio, but uh, every portfolio, and of course they also know they've got to turn up on time. <laughs> and so there's an contribute. expectation of your team yes. right there. Don't be late. <laughs> well, you're buying the donuts, huh? <laughs> Absolutely. I don't know about the donuts, although Rob Lucas loves a bit of uh, sugary donut action. Uh, it's not my uh, choice. I don't know how he does it because he's a very slim guy and he eats runs. a lot of sugar. He probably runs. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, for those outside of Australia and not uh, familiar with uh, our history, John Howard was uh, a very successful and long-serving Prime Minister of Australia. Second longest in the history of Second, Australia. Yeah, a, indeed. A, a decade. Yeah, uh, and absolutely. And of course, um, uh, you know, he, he really uh, took Australia through some pretty difficult times economically. Indeed, yeah. Um, a lot of people thought that our, our best days were well behind us as a nation when he came to power and I think... More than anything, he 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 provided confidence to the nation that our best days were in front of us, and I and I still believe that. I think that our our best days for Australia are still in front of us. I think we're the best country in the world. There's no sorry to your listeners <laughs> from other parts of the world. I'm sure there are lots of other great places as well. There's, but there's plenty we in the United Australia. there's plenty in the United States and uh, all through Europe. We've got a few listeners in Czechoslovakia. So g'day everyone over there. Yeah. So you spoke about building that team around the cabinet and making decisions in cabinet only. That's a that was a really interesting uh, conversation. So that's quite participative uh, as a and consultative as a as a leadership 
uh, trait or style. Um, I, I often say nobody has a monopoly on all the good ideas, and that's really that's really that that motto in practice. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing about it, I think one, you make much better decisions. But two, it's very, very supportive for other cabinet ministers because, you know, invariably in government, not everything goes right. Sure. But when decisions are taken collectively, there's this camaraderie, mm. there's this support for each other um, during, you know, the inevitable uh, questions that are asked if something goes wrong. Sure. The fact that you're all making that decision together, the fact that you're standing together yeah. uh, when something goes wrong, I think is what teamwork is all about. Now, often... Um, Often people criticise politicians uh, as having big egos and and standing up there, you know, by themselves and drawing attention to themselves. Well, in South Australia, we try to as much as possible be a team. Now, obviously, yeah. in some instances, cabinet ministers need to go out uh, and talk about their portfolio. We don't have fourteen people at every single uh, press uh, conference, yeah. but we do make those decisions together, and that's something I'm very proud of. Yeah, right. That really goes to the heart of of leadership and team building and and I think that's pretty valuable. So how do you define your team now? Is it is it just your cabinet that you're speaking about? Is it the elected members in general, um the office, uh the Liberal Party, all of the the above? Like how do you can you define your team? Look, all of the above, uh to be quite honest with you, cabinet is the is the decision-making body for uh, the government. Uh, and so it, it is it's got a very um, uh, defined role uh, and a very important role for our state. But beyond that, we have uh, elected members of our party yep. uh, which meet uh, yep. every time we sit in parliament. Beyond that, you have the entire parliament of South Australia. Mm. So you have 69 elected members, Labor, Liberals, Greens, yep. Independents, uh, all in there trying to make uh, decisions and we do work as a team. I know people watch Question Time, they think, oh, those people, <laughs> they don't get along very well. But there's a bit of theatrics with Question Time. If you go in there most of the rest of the time, you just see a group of politicians diligently working through complex legislation, putting the interests of the people of South Australia first. Now, of course, there's always going to be some ideological differences. Got it. Um, but... I think by and large, if you exclude question time, you've got a lot of people working in the interests of the state. And then beyond that, of course, you've got my office uh, and we work in a team uh, in my office and a lot of those people have been with me for a, for a very long period of time. There's a lot of people uh, behind me mm. uh, helping me uh, achieve what we can uh, as a government and for that I'm, I'm pretty grateful. And then, then there's the team of the family because I've got two kids uh, and I've got a very supportive family. Mm. My mum still thinks I should get out of politics. Just, uh, <laughs> leave it to some. She always says, "Oh, you're too nice, too nice for politics. You'll never get anywhere." I have to point out to her, I'm actually the premier now. <laughs> she still, uh, she th- still thinks I'm a bit soft. But uh, I think um, you know you, uh, you can't underestimate that sort of uh, that that team. That's not a work team, but it's your support team. It. It's your sisters who are ringing up saying, "Right, come on, we're going out tonight." And we're not talking about politics or yep. it's your your friends who, who do a similar sort of thing, get you away, uh, have a little bit of a, a refresh. I certainly got a couple of days over Easter, Friday and Saturday. It was absolutely fantastic. Oh, that's nice. Uh, I can certainly relate to uh, mums and their advice because uh, my mum uh, told me not to play with guns or ride motorbikes. So I went out and bought a motorbike as a teenager and then joined the army. So. Oof. Um, yeah, so she was wrong on that as well. Um, but she's also given me the advice: don't go into politics. But uh, well, that could you be that could be your next career move, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
at Hindsight Leadership and Resilience, we believe that high-performing leaders deliver high-performing cultures, which delivers high performance. What part do you see as the role of culture in leadership? And as a leader, what steps do you take to influence cultural change within your team? And uh, of course, you know, we're, we're talking about this nationally at the moment. And so I'd be interested to see how you would modify culture within a team. Look, culture is all important and culture evolves over time and things that are culturally acceptable five or ten years ago or 30 or 50 years ago might be completely unacceptable today. And I think we're seeing that now in the the national discussions uh, around uh, issues to do with workplace standards and Mm. behaviours, which, Mm. you know, five or ten years ago, 20 years ago were tolerated, completely unacceptable now a completely different concept about uh, those standards, uh, those standards which um, need to continuously uh, evolve. From my perspective, the number one thing you've got to do from a cultural perspective is to set those values and you've got to give clear direction. I think that, um, sure, some cultures just evolve over time, but I think the cultures that are more successful are ones that are really thought through. Now, Look, we've thought through those from the Liberal Cabinet uh, perspective. Yeah. Uh, and at the moment we're doing some work within our parliament about the types of culture or the types of behaviours and standards that we need to see exhibited in our parliament. And I think we need to be, uh, if you like, a role model. Uh, we can't just say, well, you know, we're the same as every other workplace. In fact, we should have the highest standards uh, of any workplace because we've been elected to serve Uh, And I think that um, when we've shone a light on some of the things which have occurred in our parliament and other parliaments around the country, Mm. quite frankly, we haven't really liked what we've seen. And I think that some people have made um, lots of excuses. Well, it's a uh, high-pressured job, uh, people away from their families for a long period of time, uh, long working hours. Well, actually, sure, um, lots of workplaces have got complexity. Lots of Indeed. people have got complexities and pressures in their life. But we need to be modelling that high level, you know, standards and behaviours. And and so we're doing that in the parliament in, at the moment. We've uh, we've got a committee which has been established to look at uh, this report that's come to us through the Equal Opportunity uh, Commission in South Australia. Um, they've said there've got to be some big changes. They're going to be made. Right. And and how. How do you, as the leader, communicate that? So, what, what, you know, I may be sort of jumping the gun, and you may not have uh, uh, had to go through thinking about this at the moment. But how do you role model that sort of behaviour and those sorts of cultural changes to get that change across the entire team? And I'm, I'm saying broadly, that, you know, the entire parliament. Well, some of it is just the way that you interact with other people. So, people will pick up on the type of uh, leader you are the type of culture that you're supporting. Some mm. has to be more overt. And I think that's what we're doing at the moment in the parliament is to say, okay, uh, the culture there has been allowed to, uh, if you like, develop over a period of time. We haven't had some of the supports that other workplaces have got with a with a dedicated HR function, yeah. uh, which is uh, designed to support uh, better behaviour, better uh, standards. We haven't had that in the past. Right. These are the things that we are looking to establish now. Also, just uh, looking to establish some standards, some standards that we can be assessed against. Uh, and so that's the work that's being done at the moment. So I think it's a combination, a combination of exhibiting uh, the types of behaviours that we want to see, but the other side of it is actually doing some work uh, and documenting the type of parliament, the type of workplace we want to be. I think every single person 
uh, in South Australia needs to feel that they are in a safe workplace, mm. uh, they're respected, uh, that there isn't bullying and harassment, and if there are, there are mechanisms to deal with it, and and that's what we need to establish here in our state. Yeah, and there's the accountability aspect as well, and and I'm I'm sure that's I'm sure that's what the uh, the voting public public want to want to see and and know that there is accountability there as well absolutely mm. uh, so so we often talk about a leader's role uh, in hindsight and at warrior you uh, as being to provide purpose motivation and direction the purpose being the why and the leaders and the team's understanding of that why is critically important in, in my view on assuming your role as the premier what was your why or your vision for South Australia and uh, how did you come by that vision for the state well, I'd never actually had a background in politics. Um, I'd never been a member of the party. I'd never worked for a senator or a member of uh, parliament. I, as I said, grew up in my family business, which was actually in manufacturing, which mm. I absolutely loved. Mm. I didn't think South Australia was doing as well as it could. Um, and I used to sometimes uh, whinge to my friends about this. And eventually, like all good friends do, they said, would you just shut up <laughs> or do something about it? And I thought, well, why not do something about it? Indeed. And so I joined the Liberal Party probably would have uh, joined the Liberal Party at age 40. Right. Uh, ran in a in a traditional Labor seat, the seat of Norwood, now mm-hmm. Dunstan, mm-hmm. Uh, which has had Labor luminaries uh, like Don Dunstan Indeed. Uh, as the member, Greg Craft of Vinnie Ciccarello. So it was really a Labor a seat and I gave it a go and won in 2010. So it was uh, a, a bit of a, if you like, a bit of a change uh, for me and my... Uh, career, but that's how I got into uh, politics in the first place. In terms of what I wanted to achieve, I don't think it is the role of government to say this is how you should lead your life, this is how South Australia uh, should uh, change. I think what we need to do is to create an environment where everybody can identify and then have the opportunity to fulfil their own potential, their own optimal self. Yeah. Um, I don't believe in big government telling people how they should live their lives. Uh, but I do think that we need to create the most conducive environment for people to fulfil their full potential, and that's what I've sort about sort about doing since I came to to government. Right. Okay. Has your vision changed since you've been the premier? Oh, look, I think that there's lots of um, goals that you set for yourself. Don't forget, Dad taught us to write down <laughs> our goals, and I've been Are you still doing, doing that. Hundred percent. Yeah. Show you in my phone now. <laughs> it's now in notes uh, yep, in yeah, my right. uh, in my phone. Yeah. I use it all the time. Uh, especially as I'm getting older, 53 now, uh, especially as I'm getting older because, you know, unless you write something down, especially with the number of people that you meet, you sort of you can lose it fairly quickly. Sure. So uh, still write down those goals. I, I don't think the overall direction uh, has changed, but obviously there are a new opportunities that present and, you know, classic one at the moment is with COVID. Mm. I mean, you know, it's been really tough. It's been tough for South Australia. It's been tough for the country. It's obviously been very tough for the, for the world. But I always think, well, what is the opportunity yeah. in this? You know, can we? Is there a silver lining to this otherwise dark cloud? And I think there has been for South Australia. So I do I'm, too. I, yeah. I'm thinking to myself, what can we do now uh, to create opportunities for our state? Because we are the safest state in the safest country. I mean, the level of restrictions that we have here are just o- something o- that other places dream about. Are almost non-existent, aren't they? They're almost non-existent. Almost, yeah. Which does worry me as well, by the way, because sure, I right. don't want people to forget that Get there complacent. is. Well, mm. I don't want them to be complacent because we are in the midst of a global pandemic, and you still uh, see on the television and you still uh, read 
uh, on the internet about the incredible uh, death rate and the infection rate in other parts of the world. So we've got to be, we've still got to be very vigilant, and that's why that vaccine rollout is going to be absolutely crucial for our mm. country. Yeah, for sure. And what are the current challenges of leading a government? You know, in that building relationships with health advisors and other state leaders uh, during that time. You know, you t- we're talking about COVID now, and and what are the challenges around that? Because this is back to team building and consensus building and those sorts of things. And I guess we're not always going to agree about the way things should be done. But so tell me what the challenges have been for yourself and and your government. I think the number one issue has been working out what each individual should be doing in the team. So um, some countries around the world, the political leader has been the COVID leader and they've been telling people what to do. We, right from day one, said that's not the approach that we're going to have. Uh, We're going to have an evidence-based approach, a science-based approach. We're going to put the people of South Australia first. We're going to educate people. We want every person in South Australia to know what the coronavirus is Uh, how it's transmitted, what people can do to keep themselves and their families and their communities and their workplaces uh, safe. Mm. And so I very deliberately said I would not be the person that would be telling people what to do. Uh, Now, a lot of people have seen Professor Nicholas Spurrier, who's our Chief Public Health Officer, and Grant Stevens, our Commissioner for Police. They've been front and centre. But again, they're only part of a very large team. You've got people like Dr Tom Dodd, who headed up SA Pathology, Dr Louise mm. Flood, who headed up the Communicable Diseases Control Branch. You've got people that are working as real leaders in our multicultural uh, sector in South Australia. You've got leaders right throughout society all uh, doing what they can, everybody pulling in that same direction. So yeah. the complexity here was knowing what every single person should do. So I'm obviously, if you like, the chair Uh, of the committee, my job is to make sure that we have got the right people Mm. in those right roles, making sure that we have got those resources and that we have an effective mechanism for communicating. But every person has to play their their role uh, in this. And I think that's what we've done well in South Australia is it hasn't been one person telling everybody in South Australia what to do. It's been a team approach. And the real partners in this whole approach have been the people of South Australia who have said, yep, we want to learn uh, we, we, want to come protect, along. we want to come along. We want to do whatever we can to keep our state safe. And by doing that, actually, mm. we've at the same time kept our economy strong. At the moment, when we look at those most recent ABS statistics, we have more people employed and more wages paid in South Australia now than pre-COVID. And there's very few places in the world that could, could say that. So I think we're the envy of the world. We just can't get complacent at this yeah. point. Yeah, indeed. And it's interesting that you spoke about the people of South Australia because we often talk about leadership is really around, you know, compelling people to do uh, what you want them to do because they want to do it. And so, you know, what you're talking about there really speaks to that particular that particular definition of leadership, I think. We don't live in a dictatorship. We don't have authoritarian rule uh, here mm. in Australia. Um, leaders are only... Uh, leaders because they inspire uh, the people that they're there to serve. So I think we have a different approach to it than other parts of the world. And that's certainly the approach that we've taken uh, with regards to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic because under our legislation there are very considerable powers that go to the state coordinator, Mm. that's the commissioner. Mm. Um, He could be very heavy-handed, but that's not the approach that we've had. Now, from time to time we have had to put very heavy restrictions in place. We've had to close our 
international borders. We've had sure. to close our state borders. Uh, we've had density uh, arrangements with certain activities. We've had to really um, restrict uh, the number and, and uh, the access people have to things that they've always uh, held dear. Mm. But I think the way we've gone about it is to explain to people why we're doing it. And even when some people say, well, I'm not really happy about that, but do you know what? I'm going to do it because I know overall if I do it, that that sacrifice that I'm making, the collective sacrifices that we're making as a state, all add up to keeping our state safe. And I think this, I actually think at the moment in South Australia, we've got extraordinary pride as a state in what we've been able to achieve because you can benchmark yourself against the rest of the world. We've all got the same coronavirus. Absolutely. It's not a different one for South Australia. It's the same everywhere. Yeah. And so we can say, well, look, we've done better than virtually every other place uh, on this globe. And I think that's making a lot of South Australians think, yeah, Good on us. Yeah, it's well, we certainly as a as a team, as a big team, have uh, have done the hard yards, and uh, and it's interesting. You know, you're speaking to an audience that is global. Some of the people listening today are going to be thinking about you know how their country and how their particular state or province or territory has has responded and where they're at at the moment. And and we we genuinely here in this particular state, and if I may say across. Uh, wider Australia have almost no restrictions, and that's not by accident. No, look, we're very fortunate here. And look, people listening in other parts of the world will quite rightly point out that there is some complexity in other parts of the world with very sure, um, very hard borders, borders. to supervise landlocked. Well, we're, we're very we're, we're, we're fortunate. We put yeah. that international border in place very early. Mm. Uh, we've got hotel quarantine arrangements in place very early. We had rapid. Uh, testing roll out very very quickly um you know we are you know we are at a geographic advantage uh, compared to many other uh, parts of the world but it's not to downplay the fact that actually it's been this wonderful partnership between uh, governments health authorities uh, south australia police but also most importantly the people of our state sure and if we were to exclude covid yep and the devastating bushfires feature as part of your tenure uh, what would you say is the greatest leadership challenge du- during your career and how did you go about managing it and overcoming it? Well, we've been in for three years now and you're quite right. We've had a few challenges. We've had mm. drought and dry conditions across most of regional South Australia. We had those devastating uh, bushfires uh, which started in December and then went right through uh, into the January uh, of last year, 2020, and then, of course, the of the, uh, the the coronavirus, so there have been some challenges. Well, in terms of other challenges, I, I might pick out a positive one rather than okay. a, a negative one, and that was the challenge uh, to try and win the space uh, agency headquarters because this was a real yeah. challenge because every premier, every state, every territory wanted it to be in their state. Uh, I'm pretty excited the fact that Australia has finally entered into the global space uh, sector. We were a country that once had great leadership. Sure. Um, we were the third country in the world to uh, set a, a satellite into orbit from our own uh, country. So mm. that's something we should be very proud of in South Australia. But in 2017, the federal government announced that we would have an Australian space agency and then the race was really on as to who was going to host it. And um, yeah. this was a real challenge because we're a smaller state. Uh, we don't have as much uh, money. Um, we're not the national capital. Uh, yeah. But yeah. we really did... Uh, work together as a team Uh, we had the universities uh, working with us we had the private 
uh, defence and space uh, companies working with us and, of course, government, multiple agencies. Yeah. And we put forward a really competitive and compelling uh, offer uh, to the federal government and ultimately the decision was made to come to South Australia. Now, I think a few people thought, what? <laughs> I can't believe it's not in Canberra, the national capital. I can't believe it's not in Sydney, our most populated uh, city in the country. Yep. But uh, I think it was the right decision. Oh, and you'd, th- say, you'd say that, though. Well, uh, and I think the proof <laughs> is in the pudding because I think um, here in South Australia we have a real focus on this. The Space Discovery Centre is about to open. Uh, the headquarters is already here. Mission Control is here. But most importantly... The state has embraced it. We've got a huge number of startup and scale-up businesses in this area. We're building satellites mm. right in the centre of our CBD to go into low Earth orbit. So this was a real challenge. Um, everybody said we couldn't do it. In fact, when I was elected as the Premier, I said, this is my goal. It was written down on my list. And <laughs> I, I show us your iPhone notes. I, I can show <laughs> that to you. And, and, and I can remember that what came back from the department, oh, Premier, we think you need to lower your expectations. Right. Well, I said, I've never lowered my expectations. <laughs> that's not the way it works. Mm. Let's just go for it. Yeah, and I had right. everybody telling me why, look, what, what we could go for would be a really exciting node. But I didn't want the node. I wanted mm. the headquarters. And mm. I wanted mission control. I wanted the Space Discovery Centre. This is a massive, massive global sector. Uh, Australia is finally uh, as part of that mm. sector. And I wanted as much of that that opportunity for our state and for our next generation as possible. And I'll tell you one thing, I have met so many students at school who are inspired by space and are changing their subjects because they think, wow, I can go into this sector, I think it's a great opportunity. So I think there's so many flow-on effects. Now, not everybody can be an astronaut, Um, not everybody's going to build a rocket, but... The fact that you can build rockets and you can build satellites, or you could be an astronaut, and you and look, we've had it before, Andy Thomas, Andy Thomas, yeah, from Adelaide, oh, yeah, who I uh, who I've actually met a few times and was uh, good friends with my grandfather, actually. Is that right? Mm. Well, mm. can I tell you that his wife Shannon Walker is actually on the International Space Station at the moment. There you go. So we had a little uh, hook up. Yeah, uh, wow. With her recently at the uh, Space Forum in Adelaide. Yep. Absolutely. That's amazing. Incredible. So, again, set your goals. Anything can happen. Yeah, and write that stuff down. Um, Okay, so before we finish up, I'd like to just get your advice. If you were to uh, provide uh, some advice to junior leaders or emerging leaders, be that politically or otherwise, what advice would you give to them right now? In terms of leadership? Yeah, in terms of leadership, leading teams. Look, can I make this comment? And look, you're the expert on this, not me. But what I would say is that there is no one right leadership style. Uh, and so you've got to choose a style that actually suits your personality. Uh, and look, I've you know been involved in sporting uh, teams where you get that very um, energetic, yeah. uh, charismatic uh, leader who inspires with great motivational speeches. You get mm. other people who inspire through their hard work, others that basically have got an incredible brain and can set a strategy. I don't think we should ever try to pretend to have be something that we're not. And yeah. I think that people have got to choose the right leadership style for themselves. But I think that there is uh, a leadership uh, opportunity within every single individual and you should never talk yourself out of taking a leadership uh, role. In fact, quite the opposite. If you get an opportunity to lead, go for it. Yeah. grab it with both hands and – you will always learn and you will always grow. So don't be timid. Take those opportunities, but develop your own leadership style, one that's going to suit your personality. 
Yeah, so it comes back to that word listeners know I don't like because it feels somewhat uh, cliche and that's authentic. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a fan of that you don't word. Like but it. It, Why not? No, because... Overused? I, I, oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> it is overused, and but it is true, right? Uh, I'm not sure that there's a better word, so I keep using it because I'm not sure that there's a better word, but it really is about authenticity and don't pretend that you're someone you're not. You, you know, if, you, if you're that you know, kind, empathetic person, don't try and be that uh, that autocrat. Um, that, that can be that can be difficult for people because they, they feel uh, compelled to be a certain way in order to fit an organisational culture. I think you've got to lean into your strengths, not mm. lean into your weaknesses. Hey, that's a good – hey, we might use that. Can we, can we quote you? Lean <laughs> sure. into your strengths, not your weaknesses. I think it's really important for people to recognise what their strengths are yeah. but also what their weaknesses are, just to be aware – of mm. those two areas and everybody's got strengths. Yeah, for sure. Um, sometimes we talk ourselves out of identifying what they are but everybody has strengths and I think the the people that, you know, do well are those that really identify them early and then lean into those opportunities. Mm. Okay. Well, I think we're uh, just about out of time. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I always do. Thank you for uh, joining Warrior U's audience around the world. It's uh, been uh, our privilege and uh, uh, honour to have you on the Warrior U podcast. Really appreciated you talking us talking to, uh, to us about um, leadership narrative and challenges and COVID and all of those sorts of things, which I, you know we can all relate to. So uh, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time. It's been an absolute honour and, and thank you for the team at Warrior U for what you're doing and the message that you're putting out. It's very, very much appreciated. Yeah, thanks, Steve. That's it, everyone. Thanks for listening. Be a good a human. Righto. Thanks for listening, gang. If you'd like to find out about our parent company and the leadership and resilience training and workshops that they offer, please head to the Hindsight Leadership website, www.hindsightleadership.com. Hindsight Leadership, all one word. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, and remember, every dollar helps, you can do that through the podcast website at www.podcast.warrioru.com.au. There's a donation tab at the bottom of the main page and all donations are really appreciated. They keep the show on the road. And if you're interested in the Warrior U military preparation course, whether that's just a physical training component or the whole cultural training package, this can also be found through the podcast website, www.podcast.warrioru.com.au. Thanks for listening.